All right, hello and welcome to the Informa Pharma Intelligence Podcast. This is our post-ASCO 2021 podcast. Uh, I'm Zach McClellan. I am joined by Tom Tyler. Hello. David DeHaan. Hello. And Ellie Davenport. Hello. So we're going to go through some of the highlights from the ASCO meeting this year. Now that it's a little bit behind us and we've had some time to reflect, we've also recently published our post-ASCO annual report, which is available on Biomed Tracker and Data Monitor Healthcare. So check that out if you haven't already. Uh, But today we're going to go through some of the highlights from the meeting. Um, We're going to first discuss things with Tom and Opdivo in esophageal cancer. Tom, do you want to start? Okay, so this um, this abstract was presented in LBA 401 at ASCO, and it's the latest in a flurry of checkmate inhibitor uh, checkmate inhibitor numerical results for first line esophageal cancer. Now, um, I'd like to remind you in our previous podcast we talked about checkmate 649, which concerned Opdivo in esophageal adenocarcinoma. And much like uh, much like gastric cancer, esophageal uh, cancer has no approved treatments, or at least had, uh, in the approximately 80% of uh, tumours which do not express HER2-positive disease. So there have been a large number of uh, there have been a large number of checkmate inhibitors vying for approval in this setting. And previously, Opdivo had. Uh, uh, had announced very positive results in in adenocarcinoma, which is one of the two most uh, most prominent histological profiles of the disease. And in this trial, uh, we now have equally encouraging results in uh, perhaps even more so in esophageal uh, squamous cell carcinoma. So uh, compared to compared to a median OS of 9.1 months in the comparator arm of chemotherapy alone, the Opdivo and check, uh, and chemotherapy arm of the trial showed, a, showed an OS of 15.4 months. The dual blockade arm with Yovoi showed an showed a overall survival of 13.7 months. Both of these approvals were statistically significant, um, quite clearly so. Equally, um, this this uh, benefit was seen across the entire population, both with both with um, PDL1 positive tumors and in all tu- in all tumors, regardless of PDL1 status. Similarly, the Opdivo and, che- uh, and chemotherapy combination showed a median PFS of 6.9 months compared to 4.4 months in the comparator. However, interestingly, the dual blockade arm actually trended lower in PFS, showing uh, showing a PFS of four months compared to 4.4 in the comparator. This wasn't a statistically significant difference, but it was lower. Um, however, uh, the objective response rate was higher than the comparator, at least in pdl one positive tumours uh, at 35% versus 20%. But again, the chemotherapy combination performed much better with an ORR of 53% compared to 20%. And interestingly, this ORR did not uh, differ that much in PD-L1 positive patients and all tumours with the 
with the uh, OR being 53% and 47% respectively. All right, thank you, Tom. Uh, definitely some interesting and exciting updates there from Checkmate 648. I have a question. So you mentioned gastric cancer briefly. Uh, I know they're relatively similar indications in how they're treated. So does this have any implications for gastric cancer? Well, the Checkmate 649 trial did. In fact, it was hugely important for gastric cancer because um, uh, esophageal adenocarcinoma and gastric cancer, the vast majority of which are adenocarcinomas are histologically very similar diseases and treated in much the same way. However, squamous cell carcinoma is slightly different, which is why they had to separate it out into a different trial. So largely, no, this will be the implications of this trial will be confined largely just to esophageal cancer. Okay. Um, are there other checkpoint inhibitors being developed for this setting? Yes, quite a lot, actually. Uh, so the main one is Keytruda. Uh, so that already has results from the uh, from the Keynote 590 trial, which is in both adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. Um, we have numerical results for that. We also have the we also have Beijing's PD-1 uh, antibody Tislilizumab which we do not have uh, any results for, numerical or otherwise, although it does seem to perform quite well in previously treated disease. So we'll see where that goes. And interestingly, we have another Chinese developed uh, antibody, Cintilimab, uh, which is appears to be uh, being brought to Western markets specifically for this setting, showing how potentially lucrative this is. And it's... Uh, pivotal trial in squamous cell carcinoma has reportedly reached its um, primary endpoint of OS, but we don't know much more than that. Okay, and um, how does this regimen compare to its competitors? So we only have numerical data for Keytruda and tentatively it appears to perform slightly better. Um, I'm basing that largely off the OS data. So the median OS in all patients of 13.2 uh, months and in PDL1 positive tumors of 15.4 months was higher than the equivalent groups in Keynote 590, which was 12.4 and 13.9 months respectively. But of course, it's always important to caveat that these kind of cross-trial comparisons are imperfect and the PFS and overall response rate didn't differ that much. Okay, interesting. And then I guess one last question that I had were you briefly mentioned the Abdevo-Yervoy combination, the dual blockade regimen. What are the implications for that specific combination after this update? So across the board, it appears to perform poorer than the uh, Opdivo chemotherapy combo. Um, I'm looking particularly at the PFS uh, at the PFS data, although that wasn't the primary endpoint. The fact that it trends lower in the dual blockade arm than the comparator arm is not a good sign. Um, of course, there still was a significant OS benefit in both uh, in all patients, regardless of um, PDL1 profile, but in light of that efficacy data, I can't imagine 
it would be widely widely used over the chemotherapy uh, over the chemotherapy regimen. Apart from in patients who are who are um, unsuitable for any kind of platinum chemotherapy, but that's a minority of the population. Awesome, thank you, Tom. I think that's it for questions on this first topic, so we can move on. Uh, it's actually my topic next, so I'll be discussing the first results from the phase three vision trial for 177-LUPSMA-617 uh, in prostate cancer. Uh, so the first results from the vision trial were presented in the plenary session at the meeting, uh, and the trial, phase three vision trial, is investigating Novartis's PSMA-directed radiopharmaceutical uh, I'll just call it 617 from here on out, in combination with investigator-chosen best standard of care against standard of care alone and heavily pretreated PSMA-positive metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer patients. So from the trial, we learned that 617 achieved an estimated 38% reduction in risk of death compared to the standard of care-only arm and also demonstrated a statistically significant 60% redu risk reduction uh, for radiographic progression-free survival or death as well, compared to the standard of care only arm. Median overall survival for the 617 arm was 15.3 months, compared to only 11.3 uh, in the standard of care arm, and median radiographic progression-free survival was 8.7 months uh, with 617, compared to 3.4 months in the control arm. So the regimen was reasonably well tolerated. Uh, there was a higher rate of drug-related treatment emergent adverse events reported with 617. Uh, that came in at 85% compared to the SOC arm, which only had about 29%. And then also serious drug-related treatment emergent uh, adverse events occurred in 9% of patients with 617 uh, compared to 2.4% in the best standard of care only arm. Uh, so reasonably well tolerated, good efficacy results, but there were some issues with these uh, results in the trial itself. Uh, namely, there were some common therapies used in the treatment of prostate cancer that were excluded from the consideration uh, as part of the standard of care regimens. Uh, and there were also some trial site failures that nece necessitated changing the study plan uh, and the statistical analysis of the trial. Uh, but overall, these are definitely strong results that should lead to approval of 617 in metastatic castration-resistant disease uh, and likely a new option for these heavily pretreated patients which have unmet need. Oh, that's great, Zach. Um, so you mentioned that standard of care measurements were excluded. Um, so which ones were excluded and how does that impact the results? Absolutely. So this was definitely a point of contention with the, with the results. Uh, there were some chemotherapy regimens excluded, uh, as well as radium-223, another radiopharmaceutical used predominantly in, um, well, used in bone predominant disease, uh, as well as, you know, immunotherapies were also excluded and other investigational agents, which wasn't really part of the controversy. Namely, it was the chemotherapies and radium-223 <clears throat> radium exclusions that were of issue. Uh, particularly, radium-223 has shown uh, overall survival improvements in metastatic castration-resistant patients with bone metastases in its phase three trials, and then also chemotherapies are very commonly used in these settings. Um, so there are some discussions about if this uh, standard of care regimen uh, actually reflects the real world treatment scenarios of patients with metastatic castration disease, um, which is certainly fair to 
to discuss. Um, the presenter for the results, Dr. Morris, noted that the exclusions were part of the protocol to ensure balanced arms in the trial, and also they didn't have any safety information for their investigational therapy with those excluded therapies. Um, so they uh, kind of chalked it up to being a safety issue, but there were definitely still some concerns about that. And can you go on to expand on the trial site failures and the change in statistical plan? Yeah, this was pretty interesting. So uh, in the results, we learned that the control arm of the trial experienced significant patient dropout uh, with over 50%, 56% of randomized patients dropping out before treatment even initiated. Um, it was explained that this was due to implementation failures at specific trial sites um, and where patients were quote unquote not adequate, adequately managed by both medical oncologists and nuclear medicine specialists. Um, and it seemed like they were suggesting that patients who were randomized to the control arm were able to deduce that they were in fact being treated in the control arm uh, based on their management. Um, perhaps they weren't uh, being managed by nuclear medicine specialists um, and then subsequently dropped out for not being in the experimental arm of the trial. Um, so part of the change in plan uh, they discussed with the FDA and it was accepted uh, was that uh, they would undergo a uh, training uh, to ensure proper management of all the patients at the trial sites. Um, it did reduce dropout rate um, and it also Part of the plan was to allow calculation of the radiographic progression-free survival endpoint to be based on the post-training randomized population. Interestingly enough, the median OS calculation would remain based on the initial intent-to-treat population, which is kind of interesting. I'm not exactly sure why that was allowed. Uh, but encouragingly, both the median OS and radiographic PFS outcomes remained differentiated no matter which way you calculated it. Um, so luckily enough, it kind of uh, solidified the efficacy, at least, um, for the regimen. So in light of these irregularities, what's next for this drug's development? Yeah, I think, uh, well, an NDA for... Uh, 617 in heavily pretreated metastatic castration resistant patients is expected later this year, and I do think that it will still be approved based on these results, uh, despite those strange um, statistical plans and the dropout rate, despite those issues. Um, so I think it will still reach the market and uh, have a relatively successful niche in these patients with heavily pretreated um, next generation hormone therapy and chemotherapy experienced patients. Uh, Novartis has also initiated two phase three trials to potentially expand its reach. Uh, those are the phase three PSMA edition and PSMA four, um, that are looking to expand its use into metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer and chemo naive metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer, respectively. So, starting out in the niche segment, heavily pretreated patients, and then starting to work forward into the treatment paradigm. So, we'll see how those trials read out in the near future. All right, I think that's it for my topic. We can move on to Ellie. I believe you're up next. Would you like to start us off with your topic? Yep, so today I'll be talking to you about the phase two and three uh, relativity 047 trial. So Bristol-Myers Squibb announced first results from the phase two and three relativity 047 trial, which was evaluating the combination of Latlimab and Obdivo in patients with previously untreated metastatic or unresectable melanoma versus 
Obdivo monotherapy alone. So relatlimab is a LAG3 antibody and LAG3 regulates an immune checkpoint pathway, which uh, inhibits T cell activity. So it's suggested that the combination of LAG3 and PD-1 inhibitors potentially has mechanistic synergy, which may lead to improved response rates and overall survival outcomes. And this combination gave a progression-free survival of 10.1 months in the study and was reasonably well tolerated, which I'll go on to discuss now. All right, thank you. Uh, so I guess the first question would be, how do these data compare with current treatment options for first-line advanced melanoma patients? So the median progression-free survival um, in the relatlimab plus Obdivo group was 10.1 months. And this is significantly longer than the 4.6 months seen with Obdivo monotherapy alone. So these results compare quite well to the results seen with the combination of Obdivo and CTLA-4 inhibitor Yervoy. And this combination has long been a standard of care option for patients with unresectable or metastatic melanoma. So although the progression-free survival of 11.5 months seen with the Obdivo and Yervoy combination is slightly higher than was seen in this trial, it is difficult to know whether these differences are actually meaningful without knowing the composition of the patient population in the Relativity 047 trial. Since the Obdivo and Yervoy combination demonstrated differential efficacy in subgroups defined according to PDL1 status and BRAF mutation status. In the Relativity 047 study, patients were stratified by LAG3 expression, PDL1 expression, and BRAF mutation status, but we currently await subgroup analysis for that. Hmm. Um, and then I think you mentioned this the safety profile. Uh, what does it look like for this combination? So the relatlimab combination showed a clear advantage over the Yervoy combination in terms of safety, particularly in the rate of grade three or higher treatment related adverse events. So although the 18.9% grade three and four treatment related adverse event rate for the relatlimab combination is higher than the 9.7% rate seen with Obdivo monotherapy alone, it is manageable and less than half of the 59% grade three or four um, treatment-related adverse event rate seen with the Yervoy-Obdivo combination in Checkmate 067. Uh, also, the rate of discontinuation so showed a similar pattern, with combination therapy demonstrating a lower tolerability than Obdivo monotherapy alone. However, from this, the relatinumab combination was significantly more tolerable than the Yervoy combination, with a 14% and 47% discontinuation rate, respectively. So I guess... Ultimately, how how do you think the data from this trial impact the treatment paradigm? So relatlimab is on track to be the first LAG3 inhibitor that will be approved for unresectable or metastatic melanoma. And the relatlimab obdivo combination would be Bristol-Myers-Squibb's second uh, approved immunotherapy doublet for this patient population. And this combination looks like it could potentially lead to a new standard of care that would then lead to replacing PD-1 inhibitor monotherapy alone. And although we're still awaiting overall survival and overall response rate data, given the relatively similar efficacy between the relatlimab and Yervoy combinations, the safety data may allow the relatlimab combination to edge out the Yervoy combination in the future. So it may change the treatment paradigm um, for first line metastatic melanoma. Really interesting update there. Thank you, Ellie. I think that's it for this topic, and we can start off in some of the hematological oncology indications now. And David, do you want to take us off from here? Sure, Zach. Um, so the first abstract I will discuss is updated data for Johnson & Johnson's Celtacaptogene autolucil 
also known as Sotacel. Um, Sotacel is a BCMA-directed CAR-T therapy being developed for heavily pretreated multiple myeloma. Um, over the last couple of years, BCMA has emerged as a new target for this disease, and we now have two anti-BCMA agents that have been approved for fifth line or later disease. Um, there's GlaxoSmithKline's Blenrep, an antibody drug conjugate approved in the U.S. and EU, and Bristol-Myers-Squibb's Abecma, a CAR-T therapy um, approved recently in March 2021 in the U.S. Uh, Seltocell is currently under regulatory review and so is positioned to be the second FDA-approved CAR-T therapy for multiple myeloma. At ASCO, uh, J&J presented some impressive updated data uh, from CARTITUDE 1, um, the pivotal phase 1b2 trial. Um, so with a median of 18 months of follow-up, CARTITUDE 1 reported a 98% overall response rate with 80% of patients reporting a stringent complete response. This 80% stringent complete response is an improvement over the 67% rate uh, reported at ASH last December and indicates a deepening of response with longer follow-up. The ASCO presentation included an estimated median progression-free survival of approximately 23 months um, with the 18-month overall survival rate at 81%. Um, there were uh, 61 patients uh, with a complete response who were evaluable for minimal residual disease or MRD assessment. Um, MRD looks for the deepest responses, and in these 61 patients, 92% uh, were MRD negative, um, which is really great. Um, taken together, these are very strong data that, that indicate that Celta cell may have best-in-class efficacy. Thanks, David. Definitely a really big update there. Very impressive. Um, may have hinted at this already, but how does this compare to approved class com competitor, uh, Abecma? Yeah, so um, at ASCO, we also saw updated data uh, for Abecma um, with a median follow-up of 25 months. Um, comparing the two sets of data, uh, Silta Cell beats Abecma both on overall response rate, so 98% versus 73%. Um, and on the complete response rate, um, so 80% versus 33%. Um, interestingly, all the complete responses with Siltacel were stringent complete responses, while with Abecma, it was a mix of stringent and non-stringent complete responses. Siltacel also reported an improved progression-free survival of 23 months versus nine months for Abecma. And kind of a, a key question now for Siltacel is whether the PFLs will show a plateau indicative of a curative effect um, in a fraction of, uh, of patients, and we'll have to wait for that data. That's really interesting. And uh, what was the safety profile like for Siltacel? The Siltacel safety profile was consistent with what has been previously reported. Siltacel and Abecma have reported similar rates of grade 3 or higher CRS at 4% uh, each and grade 3 or higher neurotoxicity at 2 and 3% respectively. However, with Siltacel, there has been a concern with delayed neurotoxicity, um, which includes movement or neurocognitive changes, Parkinsonism, or mo motor neuropathy events. Um, all grade delayed neurotoxicity events uh, were seen in 12% of patients, and grade three or four events were seen in 9% of patients. Uh, no such delayed neurotoxicity was seen for Abecma in its pivotal trial, but the FDA label notes that a grade three Parkinsonism and grade three myelitis were seen um, in another Abecma trial. However, um, at ASCO, JNG had a poster on mitigation and management strategies being implemented to identify and reduce the risk for this delayed neurotoxicity. Such strategies include more effective bridging therapy to reduce tumor burden, 
early and aggressive treatment of CRS and, and neurologic events, um, and handwriting assessment for early detections of symptoms of neurotoxicity. Um, these strategies are being implemented in ongoing sickle cell clinical trials and have been effective at reducing um, the risk of delayed neurotoxicity. So we've discussed the, uh, the clinical data, but operationally, how does Silta cell differ from the BECMA? So uh, Silta cell has two BCMA binding domains, uh, which gives it greater avidity than a BECMA. Uh, this allows Silta cell to be used at a lowered cell dose, um, which interestingly results also in a delayed onset of cytokine release syndrome. Um, so uh, CRS occurred after approximately eight days with Silta cell, uh, versus uh, one day with a BECMA. And after this uh, impressive update, looking forward, uh, when are we expecting Siltacel to be approved? So as I said, it's under regulatory review with the FDA. Um, the PDUFA date is November 29th, but we may see approval before that day. Um, although the trial enrolled fourth line or later patients, uh, we expect the approval will be for fifth line or patients in line with what the FDA decided with ABECMA. Um, in the case of ABECMA, the FDA noted that only 12% of patients were fourth line patients. Uh, for Silta cell, it was 17.5% of patients um, that were fourth line patients. Um, so well, well, we'll see what happens when, when the decision comes in. Um, but uh, there are uh, ongoing, there's a, there's a phase three trial, um, uh, it's a confirmatory phase three trial that is enrolling second line to fourth line patients um, with a comparator consisting of a pomalist-based triplet. Uh, so we may eventually see a supplementary approval for second line or later patients. Fantastic, thank you, David. Um, and I believe that's it for this update in multiple myeloma, but I think your topic is also next in CLL. Sure. So uh, the second abstract I will discuss is abstract uh, 7500, which reports the first uh, results for Elevate RR, um, a phase three trial comparing Calquins to Imbruvica in previously treated CLL. Uh, both Calquins and Imbruvica are e irreversible inhibitors of Brutin's tyrosine kinase, or BTK, um, which plays an important role in B-cell development. Imbruvica was first approved for CLL in 2014, and following a 2016 label expansion for first-line therapy, it became the preferred option uh, for these frontline patients. While effective at inducing long-lasting partial remissions, Imbruvica has warnings for uh, bleeding, infections, and cardiac arrhythmias. Calquence is a more selective, second-generation inhibitor of BTK, and has been proposed to have a better safety profile, which has been confirmed in this phase three trial. So the trial enrolled patients with relapsed or refractory CLL after at least one prior therapy. Parents had, uh, patients had high-risk CLL as determined by having a 17P deletion and or an 11Q deletion. Um, the trial met the primary endpoint of non-inferiority on independent review committee assessed progression-free survival with the two therapies having identical, identical PFS of 38.4 months. However, Calquins demonstrated a superior safety profile with a significantly lower incidence of the following four events. Um, there was a lower incidence of atrial fibrillation, atrial fibrillation or flutter, so 9.4% uh, for uh, Calquins versus 16% for Ibruvica, um, a lower incidence of bleeding, 38% um, for Calquins versus 51.3% for Ibruvica, um, lower incidence of hypertension, um, so 9.4% 
versus 23.2%, and interstitial lung disease pneumitis, 2.6% um, versus 6.5%. There were also lower rates of adverse events leading to discontinuations. Um, this broke down as 14.7% for Calquins versus 21% for Imbruvica, as well as deaths due to adverse events, 6.4% um, versus 9.5%. Um, compared to Imbruvica, Calquins did not show improvements for two secondary endpoints. Um, this was the incidence of grade three or higher infection, where both um, showed an incidence of about 30%, um, and also incidence of rictus transformation. Uh, while Calquins showed a trend for improved survival with a habit ratio of 0.82, um, it was not significant. In summary, in this head-to-head -head trial, Calquins demonstrated non-inferior progression-free survival with less cardiotoxicity and fewer discontinuations due to adverse events. So potentially, particularly with regard to the BTK space, how do you think the results of this trial will affect the CLL treatment paradigm? So the trial was in the relapse refractory setting rather than the first line setting where Imbruvica and Calquins are most often used. Um, but I think it's possible to extrapolate these results, um, these safety results to the first line setting. Um, currently, most physicians start their patients on Imbruvica and switch to Calquins if they see signs of bleeding or cardiotoxicity. Um, and, you know, even though Imbruvica has the advantage of physician fam familiarity, uh, many physicians may now opt to start their, their patients on Calquins, uh, given the improved safety profile. And are there any other BTK inhibitors in late phase development? Well, first, um, there are the reversible BDK inhibitors in development, um, and they have shown excellent safety and efficacy, uh, but pivotal trials, pivotal trials have yet to, re uh, to read out. Um, for the irreversible BDK inhibitor, um, there is Beijing's uh, Brukinza, another second-generation BTK inhibitor. Um, Brukinza is not yet approved for CLL, but recently reported interim results for Alpine. Again, it is a phase three trial comparing Brukinza to Imbruvica in the relapse refractory CLL setting. Uh, compared to Imbruvica, uh, Brukinza reported lower rates of atrial fibrillation or flutter, uh, namely 2.5% versus 10.1%. But unlike what we saw with Calquins, Brukinza did not report lower rates of bleeding or hypertension. However, Brukinza did show significantly improved progression-free survival compared to Imbruvica, with a 12-month PFS at 84% for Imbruvica and 95% for Brukinza. While these results uh, need to be confirmed when uh, updated data are available, they suggest that Brukinza may be better than Imbruvica on both uh, safety and efficacy. All right, thank you, David, for that update. Definitely some more important updates in CLL as well as multiple myeloma. And in all the indications that we discussed here, uh, only a small chunk of the updates from ASCO, obviously. Uh, these are just some of the highlights. So I want to remind everyone again that if they want to find out more about our coverage of the ASCO meeting, uh, the post-ASCO report is available on BiomedTracker and Data Monitor Healthcare. Uh, you can find those uh, through the links on our site. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, hope you join us next time. Thank you. Cheers, guys.